Good morning. Uh, we are reading out of the scripture from Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 to 26. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible in English, in front of you, in back of you, or somewhere in the sanctuary, it is on page 834. Again, Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when, Jesus, and when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and being scourged, Jesus having him scourged, delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Please be, please be seated. Let's pray once more. Father, now that this text has been read to us, from your holy word, we pray for your spirit to come down, to meet with us, and to speak to our hearts. Oh, spirit, we are willing to hear. Give us those ears to hear. Give us the heart to believe. Give us the will to act in faith. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think is the greatest need in society today? I know that kind of question has been asked in every generation, and everyone seems to have a different answer. Back in 1907, President Teddy Roosevelt was asked what he thought was the greatest need in his day. Guess what he said? Railroads. I guess it makes sense for them back then, but it's probably the last thing on your mind. 
When you think of the greatest need in our day, maybe what comes to mind is economic prosperity, world peace, a cure for cancer, an end to poverty or abortion or sex trafficking. Uh, what, what about racial reconciliation or just healing the, the great partisan divide that's splitting our country? Well, what about solutions to deal with climate change? Or maybe, maybe you're thinking of something more personal. Maybe for you, the greatest need today is simply for your marriage to survive, for your kids not to reject you or to reject and abandon the faith. Maybe it's for you to find a stable job or for you just to get a good grade on that upcoming finals. I doubt you're really concerned about more railroads, but I'm sure that there is something. There is something that you consider to be the greatest, most pressing, most urgent need of the hour. Now, we all know that there are a lot of different ways to answer that question, but nonetheless, Christianity in spite of all of its diverse expressions over the course of 2,000 years, Christianity has, at its core, one definitive answer to that question. What is the greatest need in society today? What is your greatest need? What is mine? Answer, a substitute. A substitute. The greatest need of the hour is for each of us, for every man, woman, and child to find a substitute, someone who will take our place and stand before the holy, righteous, blameless God of the cosmos and to receive the judgment that we deserve. That's our greatest need. Because left to ourselves, we would fall under God's holy wrath and we would all incur an eternal punishment in hell. That's what we deserve. And I've heard it wisely said that every Christian, every Christian should care deeply about alleviating suffering around the world, especially eternal suffering. And so that means we see all the great needs of the world, and in those causes, we seek to be advocates. But we recognize that the greatest need in the world requires not advocates, but a substitute. And that's a part that we are unqualified to play. But fortunately, fortunately someone is, and to his story we turn this morning Today is Palm Sunday, and that inaugurates the whole start of, of Holy Week. Today we are commemorating Jesus' climactic entrance into the city of Jerusalem. We are told that Jews from all over Palestine were gathering uh, during that week in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This includes a large contingency from the region of Galilee, the region where Jesus had been developing for himself a large following. As we read earlier, the crowd celebrated his entrance with such flair that it felt like a royal welcome. Jesus was being received by the people as a king. And that did not escape the attention of the religious leaders of the day. And they didn't like it. So by that Friday, after midnight, they arrested Jesus. They put him through a hasty religious trial in the dark middle of the night. They roughed him up, and in the morning, they brought him to the Romans, to the provincial governor. 
to Pontius Pilate. And in this morning's passage, we are presented with a powerful illustration of how God provides for humanity's greatest need of the hour. This morning, we get a good picture of that substitute that we all need. Now, in order for us to get a real good glimpse at this picture, what I'd like to do this morning is for us to take uh, a look from three different perspectives found in this narrative. Uh, If you want to just find the outline in your bulletin, uh, there's three points there. We are going to start with the perspective of the insecure jealousy of the religious leaders, then the fearful self-interest of Pilate, and lastly, the speechless wonder of Barabbas. So let's begin with a consideration of the insecure jealousy of the religious leaders. These religious leaders, they brought Jesus to Pilate. Uh, They were the members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. They were identified for us as the chief priests and elders. Throughout the Gospels, these religious leaders are depicted as the primary antagonist to Jesus. They are opposing him, criticizing him, trying all the time to trap him in his words. Look at verse 18. It says that Pilate was astute enough to know that it was out of envy that they brought him Jesus. They can see that the crowds love him, and he keeps teaching with his own authority, questioning and undermining all the long-standing traditions of the elders, and the people are hanging on his every word, and so these guys feel, feel seriously jealous of Jesus, seriously threatened by him. Earlier, back in chapter 26, In the beginning of the chapter, in verses 1 to 5, we read that these chief priests and elders of the people had secretly plotted to arrest Jesus and to have him killed. And so that means they had already made up their minds. These trials that they're putting him through are just for show. They're not after justice. They're after blood. Now, later on in chapter 26, starting in verse 57, they finally manage to arrest Jesus and they find worthless fellows to to lay out false accusations against them, but none of them stick. And in response to all of these accusations, the text says that Jesus stood there silent. He didn't respond to his accusers. And exasperated by all the silence, the chief priest demands Jesus to answer, saying to him, In verse 63, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. 64, verse 64, Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And right there, that was enough. Verse 65 says, then the chief priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Now, what did Jesus say that was so bad? Why did they call that statement blasphemy? Well, friends, you have to understand that in response, Jesus made two bold Old Testament allusions. First from Psalm 110, verse 1, and secondly from Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. Psalm 110 starts off with, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
Now that there was well recognized by all Jews to be a messianic psalm. It means that this psalm was about the coming Messiah. And Jesus had noted earlier in the Gospels how David, who King David, the one who wrote this psalm, is referring to this Messiah as his own Lord. Now keep that in mind as we consider Daniel chapter 7, another well-known messianic reference. In Daniel 7, he is given a vision, and he says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And so, friends, when Jesus says to all, But I tell you, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You have to understand that is a very, very bold claim. Because he's not claiming to be a political Messiah seeking an earthly throne. He's not just claiming to be another king in the line of David. No, he's not claiming to be David's heir. He is claiming to be David's Lord. He's claiming to be the Daniel 7 son of man who rides upon the clouds and receives dominion, glory, and an eternal kingdom from God himself. Now, maybe that wasn't immediately obvious when you read it, but I tell you that the chief priests and elders certainly picked up on it, but they simply refused to believe his claim. Instead of falling on their faces in repentance, their faces began to fill with rage, and they accused them of blasphemy, and they dragged them before the Romans, demanding his execution. The text tells us that it was envy. Envy was their driving motivation. Their jealousy of Jesus colored all of their actions because for so long they had enjoyed the respect of all the people. They were the recognized religious authorities. The crowds would come to them for answers, for advice, for atonement. But now it's all, Jesus said this, Jesus did that. These guys are seriously jealous. And what's beneath all forms of jealousy? Insecurity. Jealous people are the most insecure people. Whatever shaky platform that they built their identity on has now become unsettled. Life feels like it's coming apart. And jealousy? Jealousy is just you trying to recover that which, which gave you a sense of stability and security. It could be the affection of a lover. It could be the praise of others. It could be, it could be um, uh, a, a, a more success than your peers. What, whatever the case, whatever the case, jealousy stems from insecurity. When the foundation of your identity is threatened, when its weakness is exposed. You see, for these chief priests and elders, their entire identity had been centered on being the smartest guy in the room, the most learned, the most knowledgeable of what the scriptures taught. But suddenly, suddenly you have this Galilean carpenter with no formal training, no credentials, suddenly showing up, out-debating you, teaching with a moral, moral authority that surpasses yours, 
performing signs and wonders that you could only dream of. You can just imagine how insecure these guys were. Jesus really has that kind of effect on people, doesn't he? He can be viewed as a threat. He can make you feel very insecure because if his claims are true, if he is the Messiah, if he is the Son of Man who possesses all dominion and authority, then he threatens all the sources that we turn to for an identity. He exposes the inherent weakness and fragility of all the foundations that we have been building our lives upon. You know, scripture teaches that there are really just two responses when you're confronted with the Son of Man. Two ways you can go here. You can either reject his claims, and he then becomes to you a stumbling stone, a rock of offense who threatens your security, threatens your stability, and you want nothing to do with him, you reject him. Or the other option is you accept his claims. You repent and you turn to him in faith, and he becomes for you your cornerstone. That, that secure stone capable of, of holding up your entire life, bearing the weight of all of your expectations. Jesus becomes that solid rock. He becomes that foundation for your identity. And so the question is, who is Jesus to you? A stumbling stone or your cornerstone? Now, some who perceive him as the former, as that stumbling stone, will react strongly against Jesus when they hear about Jesus, just like the chief priests and elders. They will outright reject Jesus. But others, others equally viewing Christ as a stumbling stone, will be more subtle in their rejection, and they will attempt to adopt a more neutral stance, much like what we see with Pontius Pilate and his response to Jesus. So let's turn then to our second point, to the fearful self-interest of Pilate. If you try to put yourself in Pilate's shoes, you realize that he has been put in a very tough situation. In Matthew 27, in verse 11, the religious leaders bring Jesus to stand trial before Pilate. Being under Roman rule meant that the Jews had no legal authority to condemn a man to death. Only the provincial governor could make that call. But Pilate knew that he faced before himself a very precarious decision. He didn't want to come across as too harsh, but neither did he want to seem to be too lenient. Because he already had... On one hand, a reputation for being very harsh and merciless. In another gospel, in Luke chapter 13, word is being spread about how he killed a number of Galilean Jews and mixed their blood with the sacrifices that they had prepared for God. It was a very cruel thing to do. And that reputation stuck with him to the very end of his governorship. The, church, uh, the, the, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that in the end, it was Pilate's heavy-handed response to a certain Samaritan disturbance that led eventually to his removal. So Pilate realized in this moment that he's on the hot seat, and he knew that too harsh of a response in this situation could cost him his job, so he was wary. 
And yet at the same time, he didn't want to come across as being too lenient because the emperor Tiberius wouldn't tolerate a provincial governor turning a blind eye to a rebel. And that's how Jesus was being presented to him as a political activist, as a seditious rebel, claiming kingship, undermining the emperor. And so in verse 11, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Because that must have been the charge brought to him. Jesus is going around claiming to be a king. Now notice Jesus' reply. He's very, very careful with his answer. He he doesn't answer, if you notice, with a direct yes or no. Because a simple yes would likely have confirmed Pilate's suspicion that Jesus is an earthly king making an earthly claim to power. But then a no would have been a lie because Jesus is a king, but of a kingdom not of this world. So Jesus responds with, you have said so. Now, that's the exact same reply that he gave to Judas when Judas asked if he was the betrayer back in chapter 26, or when the high priest asked if Jesus was the Son of God. You have said so. The implication is that the questioner already knows the answer to his question. Jesus doesn't need to say it. Pilate, you already know I am a king, but not the kind that they accuse me as being and not the kind that you fear. I am the Messiah, the Christ, God's chosen king. All of that is wrapped up in those four words, you have said so. Now, beyond that, Jesus doesn't say much. In fact, Pilate is surprised at how he could remain so silent and not defend himself. Look at verse 13. Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, we learn in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, that Jesus was being accused of, one, perverting their nation, two, forbidding people to pay taxes to the emperor, three, calling himself a king, and fourth, stirring up people by his teaching. His opponents were just trying their hardest to paint him as the leader of a people's rebellion. But Pilate saw right through all of those false accusations. He knew that they were just envious because of Jesus' popularity with the people. And he had really no sympathy for these religious leaders. He had no desire to do them any favors. So Pilate tried to find a way to release Jesus, but without doing it directly. The crowd, the crowd would do it for him because Jesus was popular with the people after all. So according to verse 15, there was a custom between the Jews and the Romans that that was formed over all these years of Roman occupation. At every Passover feast, the Romans were willing to release one prisoner of the people's choosing. It was tied to the whole Passover and the meaning behind it. It recalled how a son of Israel could be delivered from judgment, could be released by means of a sacrificial lamb in his place. So in verse 16, we're introduced to a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. In Mark's account of this 
scenario, we're told that Barabbas had recently taken part in an insurrection where he had killed a man in the revolt. So Pilate figured that he had the perfect opportunity before him. Give the people a choice between releasing a local insurrectionist who committed murder or a popular Galilean carpenter who spends his days walking from village to village, preaching and teaching and healing people. It seemed like a no-brainer. We're also told in verse 19 that Pilate had another motivation to let Jesus go. He was listening to his wife. Smart guy. Look at verse uh, 19. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, literally, the righteous one. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now there's an intended irony here. A pagan Gentile woman is able to recognize Jesus for who he is while the religious leaders of the day remain willfully blind. According to some Christian traditions, Pilate's wife became a Christian. The Eastern Orthodox Church has actually canonized her as a saint. But you know, all of this explains why Pilate is hesitant to give the chief priests and the elders what they want. He's trying to avoid the wrath of Rome and the wrath at home. But he'll have to face one or the other depending on what choice he makes. And so he shirks his responsibility and he leaves the choice up to the crowd. Now verse 20 says that the religious leaders were able to persuade the crowd to choose Barabbas and to demand Jesus to be crucified. Now Pilate realizes at this point that he has totally misread the crowd. He thought they loved Jesus. But he was dealing with, most likely, local Jews from Jerusalem who were being gathered together by their religious leaders. These people in the crowd weren't the visiting Galileans who had so warmly welcomed Jesus earlier uh, on Palm Sunday. So with this crowd, given the choice between a man who you could argue is a local hero, a man of the people, who stood up to the man on our behalf versus some Galilean carpenter who our leaders call a blasphemer? Why wouldn't we choose our guy Barabbas? He's one of us. So Pilate clearly misread the situation. But he clearly sees now that this is a travesty of justice. He knows Jesus is an innocent man who doesn't deserve death, much less a gruesome crucifixion. So in verse 23, he makes a final appeal. Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. The washing of his hands was his way of saying that this was not his intended outcome. He thinks it's wrong. And you could say that, you know, he's trying to help Jesus. But in the end, Pilate chose to help himself. He was acting out of fearful self-interest. 
He was trying to get out of this situation unscathed without creating any trouble for himself. And you can see how he was driven by fear. Fear of Rome, fear of the crowd, fear of his wife. It seemed like the only person he didn't fear was God. But no matter how much Pilate wished to wash his hands of all of this, he couldn't. He couldn't excuse himself because to willfully ignore evil or not to stop it when it is in your power to do so makes you as culpable as the one who actively committed that evil. Sins of omission are just as bad as sins of commission. So Pilate was mistaken to claim innocence of this man's blood. He was wrong to assume that he could take a neutral stance towards Jesus. In the end, he's not absolved. The scriptures, they totally hold Pilate accountable for Jesus' death. Church history doesn't do him any favors either. You know the Apostles' Creed? We recite that here in our service on occasion. The the Apostles' Creed is the church's most ancient and well-known statement of faith, and in it, it directly names Pilate as responsible for Jesus' death. It doesn't name Annas or Caiaphas or Herod. The only guy that gets mentioned by name is Pilate. It just goes to show that when it comes to Jesus, you can't excuse yourself. You can't play innocent. You can try to claim neutrality towards Jesus. You can try the agnostic position and say that you don't have an opinion about him, that you've washed your hands of him. But I hope you see from Pilate's story that it just doesn't work. You're still on the hook. You're still culpable. The fact is, we are all guilty of Jesus' death. Throughout history, Some have misinterpreted verse 25 in very anti-Semitic ways, suggesting that the Jewish people are somehow more responsible for Jesus' death. But no, that is a wrong reading, and that is a willful ignorance of the fact that the first Christians were all Jews. The reality is, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one can claim innocence. No one can claim neutrality. We all have a part in putting Jesus on that cross. We all find ourselves in this story in one way or another. Now some people are going to respond to Jesus with an active rejection like the religious leaders, while others will respond to Jesus with a more passive negligence like Pontius Pilate. Either way, we're found guilty and responsible for his death. The only means of deliverance, friends, is to find ourselves in a third character, in the shoes of Barabbas. You see, I don't think Barabbas is set up in this story as the foil to Jesus' character. It's not Jesus versus Barabbas. Barabbas is not the bad guy here. I would argue that we are all supposed to identify with Barabbas if we want any hope of being saved. This leads to our final point, to the speechless wonder of Barabbas. You see, Barabbas doesn't say a word in all of this. He's speechless in that literal sense. But I think that as he saw these events unfolding before him, he was left speechless with amazement and wonder. 
Let me try to explain. First, it starts by recognizing that Barabbas was likely scheduled to be crucified on that day. It's commonly stated that Jesus was crucified along with two thieves on the cross. It's because later on in the chapter, in verses uh, 38 and 44, it says that two robbers were crucified with Jesus. In the King James Version, it says two thieves. But the thing is, they weren't really thieves or robbers. I know that's a possible translation of the Greek word lestes, but a better translation of lestes in this situation would be an insurrectionist, a revolutionary. If you turn to John chapter 18, verse 10, John 18, I'm sorry, John 18, verse 40, in John 18, 40, you'll see that Barabbas is identified there as in the ESV, it says robber. It's that same word, though, lestes. But my ESV also has a footnote there saying it could also be read as an insurrectionist. And we know what Barabbas is guilty of, not just stealing a few things, but leading an insurrection. And so it, it wasn't your run-of-the-mill thieves being crucified with Jesus that day. Theft by the way, wasn't a capital offense in the Roman Empire. They were insurrectionists. They were revolutionaries. They were likely Barabbas' co-conspirators. He was supposed to be executed along with them. That's why there were three crosses already prepared and ready to go that morning. So when Jesus went to the cross that day, he was literally substituting himself in Barabbas' place. That was Barabbas' cross. It was reserved for him, but Jesus took his place. And not only that, friends, not only that, the name Barabbas, do you realize the name means son of the father? Bar means son, Abbas, father. So just think about this. When Pilate brings forth the two prisoners, and presents them to the crowd, one on his left and one on his right. There were two sons of the Father standing there on those steps. And what's more, what's more is that ancient manuscripts include a first name for Barabbas. And you're not going to believe this. It's Jesus. Now, you're like, what? No, what? there's only one. No, actually, in those days, Jesus was a very common name. And so there's a good chance that his name was Jesus Barabbas. Now, most manuscripts don't include a first name, but it's very unlikely that scribes later on would add the name Barabbas. It was more likely that it was uh, the name Jesus to Barabbas. It was more likely it was omitted at some point out of reverence to the Lord. Because you can't have a notorious criminal in the Bible with the same name as Jesus. Oh, but you could. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the message of substitution. Here you have two sons of the Father, two men named Jesus. One was, a, was rebellious and a murderer. The other was righteous and a healer. One deserved condemnation and death. The other merited blessing and eternal life. 
And on that good Friday, the innocent one bore the cross intended for the other, and the guilty one walked away a free man. Jesus literally took Barabbas' place. I mean, could there be a more powerful, more palpable picture of divine substitution? I'm just trying to put yourself in Barabbas' shoes. You wake up that morning in your prison cell. This is the day you die. You and your co-conspirators are scheduled to be executed by crucifixion. And you try to distract yourself, but you can't stop thinking about what it's going to feel like to have nails driven into your hands and feet, to be lifted up into the air, hanging on a cross. You wonder, what's going to kill me first? Will I bleed out? Will it be asphyxiation? Will I simply die of exposure? How long is it going to take? How painful will it be? While you're lost in those thoughts, suddenly your prison door swings open and the guards show up. They're early. They put chains around your ankles and wrists and they haul you to Pilate's steps, to his judgment seat where your fate was pronounced a few days earlier. When you arrive, you you notice that there is a large crowd already assembled and they're agitated about something. They're yelling, they're shouting at someone. There's a man, also in chains, standing there besides Pilate. He has the most peculiar expression on his face. His face is calm. It's resolute. He's not yelling back at the crowd. He's not answering his accusers. He's not even trying to defend himself. That's different. That's not how you remember handling yourself when it was your turn. And as you're staring at this prisoner in amazement, suddenly you hear your name being called. Can it be? Is Pilate really giving a choice to the crowds to to release one of us? But you're thinking, okay, I've got no chance here. Why would they choose me, a convicted criminal? I'm a rebel. I'm a murderer. I deserve this crucifixion. But that man over there, that man looks as innocent as a dove. He looks as faultless as a spotless lamb. But to your great surprise, the crowd is chanting your name. They want you. And Pilate seems exasperated. He just washes his hands and walks away. The guards start taking the chains off of your wrists and your ankles, and you're free to go. You can leave. But you just stand there staring in speechless wonder at this Jesus who is called Christ as he is led off to be scourged and then to bear your cross to Calvary. I wonder if Barabbas followed the events all the way to Calvary. I wonder if he went to support his two friends that he thought he was going to be executed with that morning. Did he go to take another look in the face of that other Jesus? To see this man who substituted himself in his place? 
as he stood there with the crowd, staring up at Jesus on the cross. I'm certain the only thought running through Barabbas' mind was, it should have been me. It should have been me. And that's what every Christian ought to say. If you understand the gospel, then you understand that in this story, you are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. That judgment, that cross, that death was reserved for us. It should have been you. It should have been me. So where do you see yourself in this story? Who do you most closely identify with? Is it the religious leaders? Is it Pilate? Because if you understand that your greatest need of the hour is a substitute, then identify yourself with Barabbas. The cry of saving faith says, I am Barabbas. I need a substitute, and Jesus is it. He took my place. All glory be to God. Father, I pray that every single one of us here will find ourselves in the shoes of Barabbas and to recognize our great need for someone to take our place. Give us the eyes to see, the hearts to believe that Jesus is that man. He is the substitute who offers himself to all who would receive him by faith. All glory be to you. In Jesus' name, amen.